0: This is Duray Olalia and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast episode 206. the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. 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 And now your host, DeRay Olaleye. What is going on, good people? Welcome back to a brand new installment of the Before the Millions podcast. This is installment 206. And on today's episode, we are featuring investor land developer Cody Bugin and I want to start off by saying that many investors start investing in some type of traditional way, right? If you're buying a single family home, most likely you're buying your primary residence as your first quote unquote deal. Or you're going down the traditional route and getting bank financing for your first deal. Well, Cody is a land developer. And that strategy entails exactly what those terms say, land developing, right? So he goes out and he purchases land, does all the things to get the land ready for building, then actually builds on the land, and then finds an end buyer. That's what a lot of developers do. So through this process, Cody found a way to become more profitable, do less work, and take less risks. So he'll talk about it on today's episode, but I just kind of want to get your minds ready because what Cody ultimately did is he started breaking down the actual different stages of the land development process and he found out that if he started with the very first stage of land developing which is really just finding the land and then he did the very next step right before any construction he needed to get entitlements political approvals, things that are value add to land deals without actually building on the property. And quite frankly, this stage of the process is a very tedious stage. But he found that if he stopped at this stage, right, he found the land, he bought the land, he started getting these approvals done. That he no longer needed to build on this land anymore, because right then and there, he's done value add on these deals To be able to 8 to 10 X what he put in on the deal. So he was like, why? Why would I go through the entire process, spend more money, have more risk and make less profit as a percentage? When I can simply turn this stage of the process into a business model, therefore, other developers, other real estate investors are willing to pay an 8 to 10 X premium. Because in their eyes, they don't want to do the work of finding the land. They don't want to do the work of getting all the approvals. They just want to start building. So it started down a traditional strategy as Cody got really good at what he did, turned into something not so traditional. know, I think about when I used to work as an auditor and I used to have to drive out to one of our clients like about an hour away. And the reason is I was driving on site. The, the client was a gasket manufacturing company. And, you know, honestly, till this day, this was years ago, maybe like seven, eight years ago. But to this day, until I just Googled it, I didn't really understand what a gasket was. I mean, I had a good idea, but literally today I discovered what a gasket is. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, let's take a gasket for an example. If you don't know what a gasket is, just picture like a washer. You guys know when you put together furniture and then you got the screw and then you got the little disc with the hole in it, right? That's a washer, right? So you put the screw in the washer and then you actually screw whatever it is that you're screwing, right? So a gasket looks almost identical to a washer, but oftentimes much bigger and it has a completely different use, right? Gaskets prevent leaks and things like that in large machinery, but it's funny how gaskets and washers aren't. Actually, a full product in themselves. I mean, think about it. Washers go in almost every single thing that we put together. Right. All the furniture we put together from chairs to tables and desks and, you know, you name it. So these companies, they're not creating actual products, but they're creating pieces of products as an entire business. And therefore. They're able to dominate a market. Right. They're able to grow with every single manufacturing company out there. They're able to supply these companies. They're able to be the go to source for washers and gaskets and things of that nature. Because they've carved out a niche. So I love that Cody was able to do that in the land business. And I can't wait till he really just shares with us how he decided to do this and what this concept actually looks like. So stick around and we'll show you exactly how unique this business model is. We'll talk about some examples of political approvals. We'll talk about Cody's outlook on purpose, impact, and fulfillment. Why Cody stopped doing horizontal construction on his deals. We'll talk about how, again, Cody is making about 10x returns and seven figure exits on these raw land deals. So whatever niche or industry you're in, you can apply these principles, these concepts, break down your business. Think about is there a market here? Right? I think that's what actually birthed the industry of wholesaling. It was like, hey, I can be the middleman between sellers, disgruntled sellers and potential investors and get paid five, ten, twenty thousand dollars for it. So the investors, right, fixers and flippers didn't have to go out and do all that work. They wanted to just go build and make their profit or they wanted to rehab, put their tenants in there and make their income. And these niches, guys, are everywhere. Think about the apartment space, right, the syndication space. There are syndicators who actually find the deals, who have the relationships with the brokers, who are actually the touch point when it comes to getting deals done. And then below that syndicator, you may have another 10, 12, 15 syndicators who all just raise money. So let's do it, guys. If you're not yet subscribed, hit that subscribe button, visit beforethemillions.com, get your weekly dosage of real estate advice, inspiration, tips, trainings. And a whole lot more before the millions.com. Now, let's get to the show.
2: And now, your feature presentation.
1: I originally thought it was in high school when I started buying and selling cars. You know, a lot of my peers looked at me as this entrepreneur most likely to be successful. You know, I was moving and shaking, right? And I would buy cars, put some lipstick on them, resell them, and and that's what I did in high school. But as I've continued to be asked that question, <laughs> I tried to go deeper into when that spirit within me started. And I've been able to take it back to when I was 11, 12, 13, right in there. I can't remember the exact year, but I grew up in a small little town back then. We didn't even have a street light. It was a little town called damascus damascus oregon i don't know if you can even find it on a map but (laughs) in all seriousness you can they now have a street light that came in when i was in high school but there was a little flea market that they used to hold down there in that small little town on the weekends saturday and sunday and one day you know i came up with the idea that i loved trading sports cards right i loved buying and selling trade i just i loved sports cards and, uh, and I still have actually all of my cards to this day. Unfortunately, in the night, in those years is when they overprinted, when they created too many oh, cards, yeah. oh, yeah. I cards remember. That era have no value, but here nor there, I decided to rent a booth in that flea market. And as a, as a gentleman that was, you know, or a young man, and I'm a young man as a child, you know, as, like I said, 11 to 13, somewhere in there. I used to go down there and set up a booth and I used to buy and sell sports cards. And that was kind of, as far as I can remember, when my entrepreneur spirit really, really started coming alive, would be during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember those
2: card days and uh, I got in a lot of trouble at school for for doing exactly what you did. <laughs> um, but it's funny, though, you you had this entrepreneurial, you know, upbringing, really, you had this entrepreneurial spark super early. When did that continue to manifest in your teenage years? And as, as you went to college, or did it kind of lay dormant for a while until like a,
1: an awakening one day, so to speak? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was, right? So uh, and then, like I said, when I went into high school, I was buying and selling sports cars. And then I didn't go to college. What happened is I got my high school girlfriend pregnant. And so I went right into the flooring union, right? And the reason I went into the union was after three months, you qualify for full health benefits. And I needed those health benefits to pay for my baby boy that was on the way. And so I think even in high school, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was, right? So me buying, selling sports cars, I didn't know that that was in my DNA. And you know, still to this day, I kind of think I'm not convinced entrepreneur spirit. Now, someone can like force themselves to become an entrepreneur, but I think you the spirit of it, the DNA of it, you either have it or you don't. But I think a lot of people have it and they don't even realize they have it, right? Because life experiences have happened to them where they've gotten caught into what I would call a rut, not a path. I'd call it a rut. And where they're not exercising the true spirit of who they are, right? Or their DNA. And the reason I'm telling you that story, and I believe it to be true, is because it happened to me. You know, what happened is I, you know, I grew in that flooring industry, ended up running someone else's store and blowing it up and in my early 20s and doing great things. And I always thought I was a, an integrator, an implementer. Because I would work harder than anybody else. And so I was making stuff happen left and right, left and right. And the way that it, my entrepreneur spirit came back to me, or that I got back in touch with it, is that I'd kind of capped out in that industry, couldn't accomplish much more in that space without owning my own store. Mm-hmm. And so I really started exploring. I wanted to keep growing, right? I wanted to keep leveling up. And so I really was forced because of my drive to tap into that spirit that was always there. And in part of that spirit here, again, not even realizing it, that spirit I think is what also allowed me to do so well in that industry working for somebody else. But one thing led to another and in 2002, so I would have been 24. I partnered up with an individual for a short period of time and started the self-employment, the entrepreneur journey. And to be frank, I haven't looked back, you know, so I, I've had lots of challenges, lots of failures, lots of trials, tribulations, but I am fully aware of what an entrepreneur is now and it's what makes me tick. So, you know, that's kind of a little bit how I, how I got it, how I was originally that as a younger man and then, or as even as a teenager. And then I lost it. Life circumstances caused me to get on the hamster wheel. And then I started establishing enough freedom and I'd gotten further enough in my career where I was like, what's next? And I was able to tap back into that spirit. Why not
2: go chase another career? Why not go, you know, find another job? Why, what prompted you to take the next step, take a leap of faith, start your own business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say what it was back then versus the way I look at today are far different. I mean, I was in my young 20s, but... I mean, really what drove me back then was that, you know, a lot of my clients were home builders, land developers. And so I was rubbing elbows with all these guys and I was seeing their lifestyle and I was seeing their freedom and I was seeing their flexibility and I wanted a piece of it and I didn't want to go punch the clock, right? Or do the W2. I wanted what they had and the only way to have what they have had was to make that leap of faith right to face that fear to get uncomfortable that is such the obstacle that i think holds everybody back so many people back is they're just not willing to get uncomfortable they're not willing to face the fear but every time in my life that i've faced the fear and i've gotten uncomfortable i can't think of a time in my life where i didn't reflect back and be man i should have done that sooner Hmm. or And what was I so scared of, right? It's, we always, we blow things out of proportion. And the reality is, is that we don't, you know, I've been talking a lot lately to my peers and different podcasts about, you know, empowering yourself, right? And that you're worthy. And, and I just think so often we don't, so many of us are our own worst critics, you know, and we just, we undervalue who we are. We don't empower who we are. And most of all, we don't give ourselves permission. We don't give ourselves permission to make that leap of faith, right? To take that risk. We don't give ourselves permission or to feel worthy that we deserve, right? What you admire about those people that you compare yourself to or that you're envious of. And uh, the only difference is, is they made the leap of faith. They faced the fear, right? They got uncomfortable. If you're not willing to get uncomfortable, you know, that vision you have or that dream you have is won't be achieved, right? It's out of reach. It's not possible without getting uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. that is, that's beautiful.
2: I want the listeners to go back and listen to that again, for sure. So you decided to get uncomfortable. You saw what they had, you know, you were working, but you were seeing these entrepreneurs that They were working, but they had this flexibility. They had this lifestyle and you were just like, "Hmm, I could
1: do that instead of this. And you just started to start what a real estate business? Uh, Yeah. So I, in 2002, we started um, land developing and home building. And then a year after that, I partnered up in a real estate brokerage, you know? And so we had like at one point, I think it was like 90 agents or something. And that company was awarded the fastest growing privately held company in the state of Oregon. And I had a business partner, a part of both those companies that was a huge part of that journey. But I got to tell you, you know, back then, man, I am so proud of those that are on their personal growth journey that have mentors that, you know, are doing courses that have masterminds that are listening to podcasts, you know, I didn't start that journey until my 40s, really. I'm 43. I've just been on my personal growth journey, really, the last three years. You know, when I was in my 20s and I was moving and shaking and I was making stuff happen, man, I didn't have those mentors. I didn't have those, the podcasts. I didn't have, I wasn't reading books, you know, and so there's probably a lot of different moves I would have made in my 20s if I would have put more value in those things. I was, quite frankly, kind of a snot-nosed punk. I had a lot of success. You know, I was worth eight figures in my, you know, well, by 28, I was worth 20 million. And uh, I thought I was the stuff, right? And and I was just, I was an arrogant, egotistical, little snot-nosed punk. And so what happened is the downturn happened, which, you know, affected a lot of people, including me in oh seven oh eight. And so, you know, I was 28 and between 28 and 29, I lost 90% of my net worth. Wow. And I can sit here and tell you to this day, I'm thankful that I did because I needed to be humbled. And, and I lost, I learned so much more losing it than I did making it. And so I just want to, you know, let you all know, you know, your listeners listening to this, you are a step ahead of where I was clear up until 40 because I didn't put value in learning and growing and becoming the best version of myself. And so I just, I want to applaud everybody listening that you know it's just extremely valuable and and just I really admire it absolutely, you, know, you can't touch on that, and we not you know
2: kind of dig deep into that a little bit further, so at twenty nine I mean you lose ninety percent of your net worth. I mean talk to me about your state of mind, talk to me about the emotional maybe roller coaster you're going through, what plans you have if you have any plans, and I mean maybe how this came about in the first place. I know you mentioned the crash, but what actually happened yeah,
1: yeah, so back then I was developing land for residential subdivisions for single family. And we were in three States, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And what happened during that time is we all know values tanked. And so, you know, I'd be in the middle of a subdivision, right? I'd have multi, multi millions of dollars of debt, multi millions of dollars of capital out into those deals above and beyond the debt. And when the market turns in the midst of that, <laughs> you have a big reality check. I'll give you an example. There was a deal I was doing in Idaho at the time. It was a 90 lot. I think it was a 90 lot project, 88 or 90 lots. And um, if I remember right, I had the lots pre-sold for like, don't hold me to this because it was so long ago, but just as an example, I think the lots, I had them pre-sold for like 150,000 a piece or something. And by the time I was done with the project, I think they were valued at like 60 or 70 grand. And so, you know, it's just, you're screwed. And what's nice now about my current business model or even what I teach in my education company, Vestrate, which is we teach what we do. We teach people how to play in the space without all the risk, right? And without all the, the necessary capital. But we can get into that later. Yeah, we yeah, I was just that, yeah we'll, we'll get into that. I wanna I want to kind of start. But, you know, when you... I will tell you this, that if I would have valued personal growth and mentors and masterminds and my peer group, and I, th- I believe I would have handled that downturn much different. There were certain moves I could have made that really could have been actually grown my net worth instead of tanked my net worth. You got to understand when there's a downturn in the market, that's where the opportunity where real wealth can be built. You know, a lot of people are making good money right now in this market we're in, and that's great. But where the real wealth is made is in a downturn and picking up distressed assets. And because I didn't have the right people around me, I had no clue of that. I, you asked me, how did it feel? What did I do? I went into survival mode. I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to... You know make it to the other side and and unfortunately i did it solo which you know i made some good moves but i made a lot a lot of bad moves and you know it's one thing just to give you an example back then you know 2006 i bought a house for three million and something and and by the time I was done doing everything I wanted to it, I think I was into it close to $4 million, right? And back in 2006, right? So 15 years ago. And what a stupid, stupid purchase. Just stupid, just uneducated, not good mentors. And so, you know, I was up to living this crazy, lavish rock star lifestyle. And I'll tell you what, when you're in your twenties and you've got to go from rock star lifestyle to, to reality check lifestyle, it's a lot easier to upgrade your lifestyle than it is to downgrade your lifestyle. And so just through that comes humility. A lot of self self doubt came in during that time, right? When you're, when you're printing money, less self doubt, you know, becomes apparent, but You know, through it all, I mean, as I got to the other side of it, because that survival mode, you know, it took it took about three, four years to come out the other side. And that's a lot of time to do a lot of thinking. And, you know, and I think if I look at all the trials and tribulations and failures in my life, which there's been many, I think what separates those that go through that, which we all do. Is do we come out the other side stronger, you know, through reflecting, or do we come out the other side with a victim mentality? And I'm don't get me wrong, there's victims out there, but the victim mentality destroys dreams. One of the biggest things I learned from my father was he went through a hard time in the early 80s and he was self employed up to that point. And, you know, when he got whooped on, he could never pull the trigger again he never went and played the game again and he let fear control his life or victim mentality. You know, I'm bless my father. I love him. I care about him, but he, I learned a lot more what not to do than what to do, which is fine. Cause I still learned, but he just, he definitely, it's the victim mentality. You know, it's poor me and that just, and so, you know, if I was to go ask my father today, Hey, are you glad that you never could pull the trigger again or that you felt sorry for yourself or that you settled? If he didn't say absolutely, he'd be lying to himself. Right. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm kind of all over the place, but you know, just that journey, that that downturn, you know, it just was an opportunity to grow. And I'm thankful that I looked at the app. I took that opportunity to grow I could have very easily gone the other direction based upon if I would have followed in my father's footsteps. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit more about your business as we kind of get into
2: it, because um, land developing can mean so many different things, right? And I want to really get into it for the listeners who have never heard of the concept or have never heard of this investment strategy, and really just give a thirty thousand foot view of what you're actually doing, right? You're providing looks like you're you're developing land and providing these lots for builders to build on. Is that what's going on? Kind of explain that to me.
1: So, I mean, we're a full fledged land development company. So yes, we. So I'll just give you a quick rundown. Okay since 2002 we've always specialized in off-market prospecting and still to today that's what we specialize in is off-market on-market deals we usually run the other day or other other way very rarely do we do on-market deals if a deal is on market either it's overpriced or there's something wrong with it or and, and, if and what, is, not,
2: what, what is the piece of uh, property look like when you get it like when you say your deal is this just raw land
1: yeah, so it's just strictly raw land that has development potential, right? Okay. So, and I'll tell you, so what we do is the same thing that we teach, okay? And so there's different guys out there teaching how to go tie up raw rural land and flip it and make a few bucks. That's not what we teach at all. We teach value add, right? Which I think we, we all know, if you, you're talking about multifamily or buying existing facilities or storage, I don't care really what the asset class is, you're buying an existing facility how can you do a value add model right through, you know, through. And so what we teach is how to do a value add model related to raw land that has development potential. And if it doesn't have development potential, the value add model doesn't work. So in the beginning days, and so if you're doing on market, like I said, it's either overpriced or something wrong with it. And if neither of those two things, then you and everybody else is going to be kicking each other's teeth in to get the deal. Okay. And so, we just do all off market. And so, and then it started out, we would do the off market acquisitions. We would take the project through the approval process, right? Going through the political approval process. A lot of people refer to it as entitlements and then we would develop it. And then we would sell the finished lots. When you say you would develop uh, it and you would sell the finished lots, what do the lots look like? We would do the horizontal construction. So we'd put in all the utilities, the streets, the street lights, we would put in every, all those improvements. To then create what's called finished lots that then a home can be built on those finished lots, right? And then we would go and we would build the homes as well. Okay. And then about six years ago, and I'm going to stop right here for a second. Learning how to do off-market prospecting and learning how the political approval process works is 90% the same no matter what the asset class is. So I could go and do a retail deal, an industrial deal, a multifamily deal, a storage deal, a single family residential deal. I can do any type of deal based upon my knowledge of how to do off market prospecting and how to get through that political approval process. And so but then what happened is about six years ago, we quit home building and we just started selling all the finished lots to mainly publicly traded home builders, national home builders. And then as of the last few years because of supply and demand and just how hot the market is, we haven't even been developing deals, actually doing that horizontal construction, putting in all the utilities, the streets, all that we just take it through the political approval process. And then we sell it at that stage. And so we don't take on the debt and all the capital needed to secure that debt. We exit at approvals. And here's one thing, if there's anything your listeners can learn about this space, Is that if you're going to go out and put together raw land deals that have development potential and you're going to pay development values for that land never close on the land without those political approvals in place because until those political approvals are in place all you have is a piece of ag land or farmland or whatever you don't have anything without the approval i don't care if it's zoned for development i don't care if all the utilities are there for development i don't care without those approvals all you have is a piece of ag or farmland So if you're going to pay development values, never close without those approvals in place ever. It's just stupidity. And now there is another side where if someone wants you to close like a house transaction or whatever, right. Or even a multifamily value add deal where they want you to close in 30 days or whatever, that's fine, but you got to make sure you're paying as is value. And so, and when we do that, we put it into our land bank division because understand usually the as is value versus the development value, there's a spread there of eight to 10 X. So, so then what happens is if you want me to close now, because you have an agent or somebody in your ear that is uneducated on how the development space works and they're telling the seller, the property owner that just, yeah, it should close in 30, 60 days. Well, it's because that agent is uneducated or whoever they're talking to is uneducated and I don't blame them because there's not a lot of education out there in this space but we will close, but it's gonna be at as is value. Right. So here's where the risk, here's, so that's what we mainly do and what we mainly teach is I don't teach horizontal development. I don't teach all the utilities and the infrastructure, the roads and all that, because I don't have any specialized knowledge there. That's just a bunch of technical information and there's, there's tons of education out there on that. What we specifically teach is how to do off-market prospecting and how that a political approval process works.
2: Let's dive into examples of political approvals. And I think of something like airship rights and things of that nature, but maybe give me a few examples of what a political approval can look like.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's called the land use process. And so you might find a piece of property that's zoned. I don't care what it's on multifamily, single family, whatever storage. And so they want that use to go on that property in that location of their jurisdiction, right? So they want it, but that doesn't mean you can just go and do it. You've got to put together what's called a land use application, okay? That involves many studies and making sure utilities and access and you know looking at overlays. There's a whole gobble of things and that's why we have courses about it. it. Sounds fun. And so you put together what's called a land use application and then that gets submitted to the jurisdiction for them to review, evaluate, and usually there'll be, you'll go through some type of hearing for them to approve that design or that project for that land, okay? Mm -hmm. Once that's approved, now you got something, okay? And that's where the value add comes in because you're taking a piece of raw land or farm land, whatever, ag land, and you're turning it in now to an approved project. And that's the ultimate value add. And so, if you don't want to go and do the construction yourself or build the apartment complex or whatever at that stage there's many buyers out there that will pay you a premium beyond what you paid and so because you've already got it approved in a pretty little bow and so they don't have to go through the process right or they don't have the time to you know or the investment to make that happen and so and the beautiful part remember you don't close until approvals And so what you do is a double closing or simultaneous closing. And so you use your buyer's money to pay your seller and you make your scrape out of the middle. What more and more people are coming to us now about, because we've now been teaching this stuff for a couple of years, is they're like, hey Cody, because our average deal, and we do bigger deals, but our average deal still takes about a half a million dollars, give or take, to get through that approval process. That's mostly going to the application. Yeah, yeah, it's going to your engineer, you know, all your consultants, And it's going in jurisdictional fees, you know, to, to submit and whatnot. And then, you know, usually some type of earnest money to the seller. And so the um,
2: reason real quick that you're able to go in and get these political approvals, even though you don't get on the properties because you have it under contract and you
1: have what's called equitable interest in the property. Correct. Yep. And we still have the landowners, they sign all the applications. That's a part of our purchase and sale agreement with them. We have a very detailed custom PSA. That is built specifically for this type of model but it's just that's a part of that psa is they have to sign any and all applications we provide to them i love i love this so much yeah yeah but the thing we're doing them a favor too because remember all they have right now is farmland or ag land so if something happens to me all i'm doing is increasing the value of their property and so it's a win-win and so it's just, it's a space, you know, I had a student mentioned to us the other day, just what sold them on going through our course was, is they were able to get their arms around or see where it's truly a blue ocean opportunity because you don't hear about this stuff, right? Sure. And so there's very few people out there doing it, but like that student in particular, and it's why we came out with a new course called land, pro and I'm not trying to pitch you all here, but just to give you a little insight, we came out with a new course called Land Prospecting Unleashed. It's because with all the hundreds of students we've taught off-market acquisitions and we've taught entitlements to, or the political approval process to, they've said, hey, Cody, we just wanna go and dog deals. We just wanna tee up deals, but would you ever be interested in partnering and you run the approval process and you capitalize that process? And so we came up with a new course called Land Prospecting and Leash. So now what happens is our, a lot of our students are just teen, not just, There's tremendous value in finding these deals right and bringing that willing seller to the table they tee it up we handle the contract we capitalize everything we get it all entitled and then when we exit we cut them in on our profits and so like one in particular student just this month brought us two or three deals that we're doing and like i got one deal closing in i think it's february or march that you know lord willing but i have it pre-sold seven figures, non-refundable earnest money down, you know, that student will get cut in on that payday. And that brought me that deal. And that student's going to make close to half a million dollars just by teeing up that deal and bringing it to us. So it's really fun, right? It's we're having a huge impact on people's legacies. You know, we're a part of, you know, their journey and finding true freedom. And so it's, it's, it works out to really be a win-win. When you talk going back
2: to the political approvals and, you know, a lot of the buyers, if you will, from you guys, they don't want to have to go through that process. And let's talk a little bit why and how that process may be cumbersome. We talk a little bit about time and we talk a little bit about money and, you know, you're spending sometimes upwards of
1: half a million dollars, but how much time goes into that approval process? Great question. It's different across the country. So to give you an idea, we started scaling our business into this year. We were just up in the Pacific Northwest and now our headquarters in Dallas and we're doing deals across the country. And so I would say on average, that process on average takes 12 months, but you know, in certain areas we're getting we can get it done in six months. So that's the timing. And so, but why are these guys willing to pay us so much for it approved? I'll give you th- three main reasons. Okay. One it's because it was off market. So they didn't even have access to the deal or know about the deal if it wasn't for us. Okay, that's tremendous value. Really quick before you get into the next step,
2: that's you know, going to the single family model. That's like what a wholesaler does, right? You're bringing these deals to your buyers, it's off market, so that's where the value is. Now, obviously you're adding way more value after this, but that's again, generally where the starting point is for you guys, because you've already
1: had, you already now have baked in value by finding an off market deal. Deal flow is everything. If you don't have deal flow, nothing else matters. Absolutely. Period. And here's, you write this down. Whoever controls the dirt, controls the deal, period. No matter what the asset class is. If I control the dirt, I control the deal. I call the shots. That deal gets played out the way I want it to get played out, right? right? As long as I'm logical and reasonable and all that, but whoever controls the dirt, controls the deal. So you bring value because you create deal flow. Two, is that political approval process, you have to be resourceful. You have to be able to think outside the box. Mm. No two deals are the same, okay? Jurisdictions come up with crazy stuff, right? And what you've got to figure out how to do is make that jurisdiction happy. Give me an example of something crazy
2: where you make them happy.
1: (laughs) They want me to do some offsite improvements. And what that means is improvements that aren't on my property. So there's some, they have some desire for me to improve something else. That has nothing else. to do with your actual property.
2: That's nothing to do with my project.
1: <laughs> Even the law or the code, I'm not required to do so. Okay? So I can go fight the legal battle and win by going through the legal hoops. Or I can say, you know what? No. How do I, and a lot of times these jurisdictions, they will put requirements on you or they are asked things of you not because they think it's reasonable, but it's because a lot of them are elected officials and they need votes. And if they don't keep the public happy, they won't be in that seat very long. And so that's where it becomes very political. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our strategy a lot of times is, how do we make the politicians look like heroes to the public and that we got our teeth kicked in and we, did, we just got beat, you know, cause we're the rich developer, mm-hmm. right? How do I give them that win, but then I can pick up wins other places that aren't in the spotlight to where the overall deal works just fine, right? And that's the creative thinking, that resourcefulness, thinking outside the box. Most of our buyers, that's not their strong suit. They're held to strong policies or procedures, bureaucracy, hoops, right? And so a lot of times we see ourselves as a chameleon, right? Like, I can do things for the jurisdiction or i can do things to for a property owner that my buyer can't do because how they operate is so rigid right right? so i'm a chameleon because i can speak everybody's language and get the deal done and so that is tremendous value to a point where thank the lord you know we have certain buyers of ours that will bring us deals and say hey you go get it approved right and then deliver it to us in a pretty little bow And here's what we'll pay. And it's substantially more than what they know I'm going to buy it for. But it's because they put so much value in me handling that political approval process for them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So your first baked in appreciation is finding
2: off market deals. The second one is this political approval process. And at that point, and again, this is because you've been through the journey where you've actually built homes on these lots, right? You've gone through the entire process. You've realized where the profit pockets are and you're like, Hey, this is a better use of my time, effort, and resources. And we don't have to take it all the way. We can take it up to this step here and we could be just as profitable, if not more.
1: We're actually much more profitable from uh, you know, an ROI or even a margin standpoint, because right now there's such a need for housing, we're able to take most of the profit that is in the actual horizontal development where all the risk is, we're able to take most of that profit off the table at approvals because the buyers need the lots so bad, they'll do the horizontal part of the construction for very little profit to have the lots to build homes on. And so, because they got to feed the machine, right? They got to feed the home building machine. And even in multifamily, like we had a multifamily deal we did where you know, we made 10,000 a door and you know there was it was you know that deal was a couple hundred doors um and it's because we put together the off market deal and we got paid at approvals and and so and you can even take you know, another division i don't mean to be too long winded but another division we're starting in 2022 is so all the stuff we're talking about is ordinary income right and i'm a big believer in ordinary income because by generating ordinary income now i'm creating capital that i can invest in passive deals cash flow deals absolutely but not only that I was like, how do I take my model that is so focused on ordinary income and how do I turn it into passive? So the, another division we're starting this coming year is that a lot of the multifamily and storage guys, which are our two favorite asset classes for holding real estate is they don't know off market. They don't know how to do entitlements. So we're going to start doing the off-market acquisitions for storage and multifamily operators. And we're going to go and put the deals together. We're going to take them through the approval process. We're going to turn them over to them. They're going to build them and hold them, right? But we're getting a piece of the GP, the general partnership, because of the upfront work. And so it's a way for me to not get outside my lane at all, right? Just do what I do every day, create passive residual cash flowing
2: assets yeah, that's beautiful. I love that so much, man, this conversation has been a breath of fresh air. absolutely. Getting back into your life because I think that we can talk about this all day and um, we'll definitely leave links uh, to your website and everything you guys have going on. But getting back into your life, you're a family man right? You have your your wife and kids. and how do you if you incorporate them in the business?
1: I have not up to this point, okay? It needs to be their decision and not only their decision, but that they, they're qualified. I just, I keep my business and personal very separate and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer here, but I need my kids to, to follow their own journey. Right? So I have a 24 year old, a 20 year old and a two year old, which is a whole nother story in itself that has impacted life in amazing ways. But I want them to go spread their wings, right? Find their way. Just because I'm a businessman or I'm self-employed or that doesn't mean that that's what's right for them. I want them to do what fits their DNA. And so, but they're still, you know, my, my two oldest are, you know, like I said, 24 and 20, they're still very young. I mean, 10 years from now, it might match up and it might be a good fit where there's a role in the business they're qualified for and they want it. But I'm not a fan of handing anything to your kids. I'm just, I'm not. Uh, You probably haven't watched HBO's hit
2: television show, Succession. I have no, not. not. Okay. Never mind. I, I yes, yeah, it's, it's a great show, but it definitely touches on what you're touching on right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I will tell you, though, I mean, my big thing today is I'm more focused on legacy or like what my shirt says, which is PIF, which is purpose, impact, fulfillment. Um, I'll tell you, back in those 20s when I was making all that money, I was a huge failure because I was a workaholic. I sacrificed my marriage, relationship with my kids, my health, my hobbies, my friends. I sacrificed everything for the damn dollar. And so you've got to realize what cycle you're in in life is that if you don't have a family and and kids, well, then that means you've got a little more bandwidth available for work. But the whole idea about just work as hard as you can and like, I think that philosophy is bullshit that at the end of the day, unless you're successful in all areas of your life, you're a failure, pure and simple. And so, and don't get me wrong, people throw around the word balance a lot. I don't think perfect balance is ever possible for any length of time. You're always going to be sacrificing a little bit of one thing for another, but at the end of the day is stay in tune with your priorities and make sure you're hitting it on all pillars of your life. But like I said, the family, the, you know, the wife and family, kids, that pillar might not exist in your life and that's okay right that gives you more bandwidth to dedicate to other pillars in your life but just be aware of the stage you're in in a life and don't make the mistake i did of sacrificing my family and basically every other pillar in my life to go make millions because at the end of the day we've all heard it man it's empty and uh, you know some of these influencers out there they talk about just working harder than the next guy and i just think it's a freaking joke and at the end of the day what we're all striving for is it's not wealth It's not to be rich. It's not what we're all striving for. It's not to be happy. I don't even love the word happy. What we're all striving for is fulfillment. And I don't think true fulfillment is possible unless you're trying to hit it on all pillars of your life. And one of those pillars is giving back, making a difference, having an impact. Right. And so figure out your purpose, which will lead to you having an impact, which will lead to fulfillment. And that's where the magic happens, man. Like, you know, I'm on my second now, my round, you know, of, Money and lot, whatever, and but I'm approaching it completely different. And the more that I'm focused on throwing down the rope, giving back, making a difference, I'm telling you, you're sure you've heard it before, but I'm witnessing it right now before my eyes. The easier the money comes, the less you focus on it. Absolutely, I love it. Last question in this segment. When you feel overwhelmed
2: or maybe you feel unfocused or maybe you've just lost focus temporarily, what do you do to get yourself back in
1: alignment? And if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? I love this question. I think anxiety is a part of entrepreneurship. You know, it's no one said being an entrepreneur is gonna be easy, right? Just like, you know, I'm a lover of Jesus. I have faith, I believe. And just like the Lord never said, being a believer was gonna be easy it's a tremendous weight and opportunity and blessing, but no one said it was gonna be easy, just like entrepreneurship. And so I think there's, it's very easy to slip into anxiety as an entrepreneur and, and, I, and it happens to me. And whenever I don't find myself in peace or in my flow, right, in life, I instantly know that I'm not exercising my faith muscle. And I'm not just saying faith in Jesus Christ, but faith just in what, whatever it is you believe, faith in you believe you can go build this business or do this thing. Like you can believe it and that's where it starts. You gotta believe it's possible. If you can't believe it's possible, it won't happen. But beyond believe, I have another shirt I, I have, it's called, it says believe, action, faith on it. And first you gotta believe it, then you gotta take action on it. But third, and I would say as <laughs> important as the other two, if not most important is faith you got to realize you're not in control of everything right and you have to have faith that it'll be accomplished right that it'll come to fruition and if you are trying to control everything you're screwed you can't live in peace or stay in your flow if you don't exercise your faith muscle and having faith in whatever it is you're believing and or believe and you're taking action in and what helps me to stay grounded i journal all the time about falling out of peace or the anxiety sneaking in. So I journal every morning, before I even knew about the book, Miracle Morning, I have a miracle morning. I have daily habits, numerous of them that I have to do or else I get out of my flow and I lose peace. Yeah, I love it, beautiful answer. This episode is brought to you by the
0: 90X Journal. It is a little known fact that you are 42% more likely to achieve your goals when you write them down consistently. In fact, Forbes describes this as one of the most potent ways to achieve your goals. I actually tried a few of those iPhone journaling apps, but it wasn't the same for me. For some reason, I needed something more visceral, something more concrete. And you can call me old school or you can look at it as a form of brain hacking. But a physical journal has been key to the consistent achievement of my quarterly goals. The thing, though, about physical journals is that they aren't all made the same. And I ran through just as many different types of journals as I did apps and none of them checked the boxes. Personally, I needed something that would help me create a step-by-step plan to achieve any goal in 90 days. I needed something that would help me decide on these goals, decipher the most important ones, time block, and then prioritize. And that's when I found the 90X Journal, the only journal that not only has a sleek look that demands compliments, but it's not just arm candy from a vision board an income tracker, to a 90-day calendar assistant, to habit trackers and affirmations. This journal does it all. And for the BTM tribe, I was able to snag you a sweet discount to try your first one or restock for next quarter. Visit BeforeTheMillions.com forward slash 90X and enter code MILLIONS15 at checkout. That's BeforeTheMillions.com forward slash 90X and enter the code 1000000s Fifteen with the numbers written out. One five at checkout. Now, since I've started doing these two things—rewriting my goals every single day and using the journal's built-in water consumption tracker—I've had a clear mind and clear skin. LOL. Again, visit beforethemillions.com/90x and enter code millions15 at checkout for 15% off of your entire order.
2: Lifestyle design acceleration hacks.
1: What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Definitely the book called The Speed of Trust. Trust is the foundation in every relationship. If you want to have fulfilling, positive, impactful relationships that you can take to the grave, it all starts with the trust. And so definitely the book, The Speed of Trust has had more impact on me than any other book. Love it. First time recommendation. I love first time
2: recommendations, So we would definitely have that in the show notes. What is your favorite lifestyle design app?
1: This can be a business app or tool. Jeez, that's a tough one. This is going to sound horrible, but not horrible, but maybe not very impactful. But right now, we're implementing Microsoft Teams into our corporate company. And so, you know, I have a staff and I have a team, you know, and so, you know, for me, it's how do I monitor my business without getting into the trenches? And so I'm finding teams to be very valuable right now. I like it. I like it. That one is a common recommendation. What do you enjoy the most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I have choices, right? I have the freedom to do what I want when I want. And to me, freedom is the most priceless benefit you can ever have in your career. And I would even take it a step further without freedom. Being successful in all pillars of your life becomes much more difficult. the show is all about freedom so you're hitting home what
2: (laughs) what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make
1: before the millions to get to where you are today i've done it a couple times right so i did it in my 20s and then and i've done it again in my 40s so we have to bring you back on to figure out what your 30s were like then (laughs) Um, i screwed up my 30s and that's you know i have went through a lot of learning lessons in my 30s but biggest sacrifice for me i'm much more in tune with i think what's important in my 40s than i was in my 20s and for me it's how to balance being selfish versus selfless is is that people usually say hey you need to be selfless or you need to be selfish and i here again i don't i think there's a place for both right so like my daily habits are very selfish to me, right? But they take discipline and ultimately it's in an effort, in a selfless effort, because the better I become, the better I am for everybody else, mm-hmm. right? And so it's in an effort to actually be selfless. And I know that might be a tongue twister or a catch 22, but that'd be my answer. I love it, absolutely, it makes perfect sense to me. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? I would say two gentlemen come to mind, Tim Aldinger and a gentleman by the name of Brian D'Ambrosio. Both those guys saw potential in me before I even knew I had the potential. And so, you know, they opportunities came my way because of those two guys and their belief in me. That's awesome. Last but not least, why do you think so many
2: of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of
1: getting to the millions? Yeah, because intentions doesn't accomplish anything. It's what we talked about earlier. It's facing the fear. It's being willing to get uncomfortable. It's empowering yourself. It's giving yourself permission. It's getting comfortable with that you're worthy, right? Is, Is that, but man, until you are willing to make that leap of faith and take some risk and get uncomfortable and deal with fear, fear will hold you back unless you're willing to attack it. And i would no questions asked pin it on fear yeah ladies
2: and gentlemen mr cody jugan mr cody if the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you if they want to ask you a question or two maybe find out a little bit more about your company how they can get involved whether
1: it's passively or actively where can they find some of your information so if you don't mind i'll give you two places depending on what you're looking for if you're just looking for content from me and you want me to be a part of your journey and be one of the people you know, that you follow and you listen to the best place, just go to Facebook and search my name, Cody Bugin, and I'll pop up and you can, and you follow us. If you're looking to learn more specifically about what we do or what we teach, I'm going to send you to a specific link, which is vest, right? Which is my education company dot com slash Cody. And so this is uh, my name. So simple enough and that'll send you to to a location where or to a page where you can learn a lot more about what it is we do and teach Yeah, absolutely i love it and the links ladies
2: and gentlemen to every single thing we talk about on the show will be in the show notes mr bugan i apologize for completely butchering your last name the first time around i will get it right from here on out but i appreciate uh, you sorry. so much for coming on the show you have been a breath of fresh air for myself and my listeners i'm going to go back and have to listen to the show a few times as probably listeners as well thank you so much for all you've done in our community and we'll talk to you very very soon